Some of you may know that today is a particular uh, Sunday that happens once a year. It's usually right around the last of October, the last Sunday in October. That is Reformation Sunday. And because it's Reformation Sunday, I want to begin with a story. There are many stories that will probably be told from pulpits all over the country and the world, for that matter, today. Uh, around Martin Luther, who was a, a German monk. He nailed the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, unsuspecting that he would be starting a movement that would leave an impact on the church even 500 years later. And while that's a wonderful story, that's not the story about Martin Luther that I want to share with you this morning. No, I want to talk about the time that Martin Luther went to Rome. You see, he had been involved in a few different controversies and was summoned to come and uh, give a defense to work these things out, whatever needed to happen to resolve this controversial matter that he was involved in. And so he's, he's journeying on horseback from Germany, where he's at, all the way to Rome, Italy. It was a long journey. It was tiring, but he was no doubt excited to finally get to see Rome, the seat of the Catholic Church. Well, when he got there, he found out that things were not quite as they should be. He found all kinds of licentiousness and corruption, in fact, in the very people who were supposed to be the guardians of truth and those caring for souls. And there were many factors that led the Catholic Church down this path, Uh, And we don't have to get into all of that, but the point is that this kind of corruption, the charging for indulgences, the licentiousness that was evident there, it was all evidence that these men had not experienced the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's where we're going to be focused today is on continuing from last time. The last message that I preached was called The Spirit-Filled Life. This is part two. And we're, the last time that I had the opportunity to preach, I gave an overview of the Holy Spirit's ministry throughout the entirety of Scripture. This time we want to zoom in a little bit and start to look at individual aspects of his ministry in the life of the believer. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit is probably the least understood member of the Trinity. He's often blamed for all kinds of weirdness. He's often exploited for financial gain. And then on the other side of that swinging pendulum, he's often ignored altogether. And so we have to recognize that despite all of the abuses and bad teaching around the Holy Spirit, without the Spirit, there is no Christian faith and spirituality. So this is incredibly important. And what we're going to see today in this passage is three ways that the Spirit is involved in our conversion. That is from taking us from polluted to pure, from obstinate to obedient, and from a sojourner to a citizen. And so with that, let's pray Go before the Lord and ask his blessing on this sermon. Heavenly Father, we come before you. and We are thankful for the Spirit's ministry. We are thankful that you have not abandoned your people, but that you're with us even this morning. 
Lord, we, we want to see what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be given a new heart so that we would have clarity on this issue. Even, Lord, that we would receive the new heart if that's not true for everyone who's here. So, Lord, please bless this time. It's my desire that you would be glorified above all. Hide me behind the cross of Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll be reading verses 25 through 28. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And well, there are many things to say about this section, and due to the time constraints, I simply can't say all of them. We want to focus specifically on the Spirit's involvement in transforming the entire man or the giving of a new heart. And so, to begin, the book of Ezekiel is one of the most structured books in the Bible. Right? If you understand the, the structure and the logical flow of the writings of the prophet Ezekiel, then it's going to be a lot easier to pull out the meaning from the text that God wants us to understand. Ezekiel was a prophet who was highly educated and he knew how to communicate with writing. And so we're looking at the structure like a road map that's going to tell us what to emphasize and even how to interpret the passage itself. And we also need to understand a little bit about the man who wrote it and the providence of God in his life because all of the things that were going on around him fed him. It shaped him into who he was and God used him to preach to a very specific people to deliver a very specific message from a unique point of view. And so by the time he was deported to Babylon... He had begun his apprenticeship to become a priest in the temple. He had spent his entire life waiting for the the time when he would turn 30 years old and begin his priestly ministry. As an apprentice, he had probably already begun many of the duties of the priest, but he couldn't be formally installed until his 30th birthday. And then along came the Babylonians and they took him out away from the temple at about age 25, in the second deportation to Babylon. Well, while he was preparing to be a priest, God had other plans, and he sent him with the exiles, the faithful remnant that God would leave. He protected them by sending them to Babylon because he was bringing destruction against the entire city of Jerusalem. And so he sent Ezekiel to be their shepherd apart from the temple. In chapter 1 through the uh, chapter 3, verse 27, we're given the inaugural vision. And it's kind of a strange passage if you read it. Uh, A lot of times we don't really know what to do with it. We have this vision of God. He's riding on a chariot. There are angels. There are wheels within wheels and all kinds of colorful gemstones. God is in his heavenly glory. 
and immediately we're drawn towards the signs of theophany. And a theophany is when Christ makes an appearance in the Old Testament. Right? And we see these elements like a cloud, like the brightness of his glory, like fire around him, all of which were present when the nation of Israel was back at Mount Sinai and Moses was up on the mountain. And we also see living creatures similar to the beasts that are around the throne in the book of Revelation. Right? And they're following the Spirit's leading. The text says that very specifically. It's a nice little breadcrumb that tells us we should be looking for this thread of the Spirit throughout the entire book of Ezekiel. And after all of these exciting details are brought forth, we see one who has the appearance of a human who is seated on the throne. And so it's one of these sections of the Bible that we're just kind of left scratching our heads going, what am I supposed to do with this? And I believe the answer to that is in the form of a question, and it is, why is the glory of God not in the temple? And so the following section then answers that question in detail. Chapters 4 through 24 deal with the judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. And in this section, we see idolatry running rampant. Ezekiel 6, 8, and 9 says, And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escape the sword. And when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me over their eyes. They go whoring after their idols and they will be loathsome for the evils that they have committed for all of their abominations. And so this theme of the evil of Israel and the profaning of God's name is being brought to light as the heat is getting turned up and God is bringing judgment according to exactly the way that he said he would. There were in the temple in chapter 8, we see these images of beasts, which is a violation of the second commandment. We see uh, people that were faithful in previous generations now complicit with this idolatry. We see women worshiping a Mesopotamian cult god and men worshiping the sun. And of course, idolatry is nothing new to the nation of Israel. Their history got off to a rocky start when they're out in the wilderness and they start worshiping two golden calves before Moses has even had a chance to bring the law off the mountain. Right? And they would not abandon the Baals. They would not abandon their Asherah. And continuously throughout their history, they would offer children as a sacrifice to Moloch. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 10 describes them as murderous, adulterous, and lying people. And yet they still continue to congregate in the temple. It's safe to say that they had external religion, but their hearts were far from God. And so God's glory leaves the temple, and the Lord brings his chosen people into utter destruction, just as he promised he would back in Deuteronomy if they broke his covenant. In 25 through 32, we see the judgment against Gentile nations, which is not uncommon for the prophetic books, but it's a detail that often is overlooked. Seven nations are named. That's on purpose. This is the completeness of judgment. Though Israel is uniquely God's, all nations are under his dominion. And then we come to the section that we're focused in today, chapters 33 through 39, with the promises of restoration. And we see a change in tone. 
The dust has settled and judgment has been carried out. Despite their sin and wickedness, God has not abandoned his people. He's going to bring them back and he gives them the promise of a new covenant. He will cleanse them from their sin. He will breathe life into their bones. He will destroy their enemies and he's going to pour out his spirit upon them. And in chapters 40 through 48, one of the most difficult sections in the entire scripture to interpret, we see the completeness of restoration. And there are a lot of discussions in this section that we don't need to get wrapped up in, but I think there are some high points that help us to understand the direction that the book of Ezekiel is going. We see the temple purified. We see that the glory of the Lord has returned to the temple. We see that the offerings are now pleasing to God. And a great prince rules. And by the way, he's responsible for supplying the offering for the atoning sacrifices. And we see water flowing out of the temple that gives life everywhere. And the name of the city is that the Lord is there. And so we're moving along this path, right? From judgment to restoration to resurrection to pure worship. And all of it hinges on this one single passage where we're at today. And that is the coming Holy Spirit's ministry. And so we look to our text now in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. The nation of Israel had profaned God's name. Going back just uh, one page over, we see in 36, 19 through 21, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them, but when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. The nation of Israel was chosen to bear the name of God. Exodus 27 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Not taking the Lord's name in vain is much more than simply guarding your words. It's living all of life as an ambassador of the king. It's recognizing who you belong to. And that affects everything. And this is the expectation for God's children. And of course, you have experienced this, those of you that have children. If your child does well in a sporting event, it gives you a sense of pride, right? You're proud of them. It makes you happy. But let's say they do something bad at school, right? And it's so bad that you get called in for a parent-teacher meeting. You're not so proud then, are you? No, in fact, they've done something shameful, and you're embarrassed. It brings shame upon you. This is the same thing that the nation of Israel had done to God, with all of their spiritual idolatry. And we have to ask the question, is there danger of shaming the name of God this way today? I think that's a relevant application. Is there danger of shaming God's name today as his church? Does it ever even cross our mind that maybe the worst problem with tolerating sin in our own lives 
is not that it simply affects our ability to communicate the gospel, but that it actually brings reproach upon the name of a holy God. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And it's easy to complain about the lack of holiness in churches all across America today. There's always something wrong. But those are the people over there. And that's the, they are not who this sermon is for this morning. We need to bring this a little bit closer to home. How often do we find ourselves in spiritual cruise control, right? We come, we join a, a good church, we establish our friend groups with like-minded people, we do our best to keep most of the world's filth, most of the world's filth out of our home. And then we just let it go on autopilot. And if I slip up occasionally, nobody needs to know. Right? But this is the thing. God knows. And he says in his word that eventually your sin will find you out. And when it does, you're bringing reproach upon his name. He sees our sin and it damages his reputation and it pollutes us, making us unclean before God. And so we need to understand that God cleanses his people for his name's sake. That's what's going on here in our passage. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. He does this for his own glory, for his name's sake. And we need to pay attention to the shape of this passage, right? Uh, all the way through to verse 28. It kind of makes a pyramid. And this is intentional. It's a, a structure. You know that I like structures, because they're helpful, <laughs> right? And, and what's in the middle is the emphasis. And so you can see this kind of mirroring pyramid thing. It's called a chiasm, if you ever see that in a commentary, where what's in the middle determines what we need to focus on. And in fact, what's in the middle is reflected by all of the other points leading up to it from both sides. And so the emphasis of this passage is the coming Holy Spirit, in fact, we should understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who is behind all of these I will statements where God is acting to cleanse his people. Israel is unclean. They are overrun with sin. They're separated from God. Even though they have this covenant relationship with him, they have broken it. And so they're impure, they're, un they're, they're impure, they're unclean. And they can't enter into the presence of a holy God. They were indistinguishable from the surrounding pagans. Now, under the Old Testament ceremonial system, there were certain provisions that were made to make a person clean after they had done something to become unclean. And uncleanness is not always a sin. But it does mean that you can't enter into the congregation to worship the Lord. And so in Leviticus 14.51, we see water being used to purify a house that had become unclean. 
right, where they would take a, a branch of hyssop, a tree branch, and they would dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the house to make it clean. In Numbers 8-7, we see the Levite purification, where if a, a Levite was about to begin his ministry, he too would be sprinkled with this clean or cleansing water. And in Numbers 19-18, we see if a person dies in a tent, then the tent and the people who were with him in the tent had to be purified again with this cleansing water. And it's interesting that in this passage in particular, we see the presence of water and the Spirit, as this is a theme that's being developed throughout the entirety of Scripture. It begins in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Isaiah 44.3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants. And in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, it really comes into focus when he tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what's going on? Why the water? Well, for the Hebrews, this cleansing water was symbolic of creation. Think back to Genesis 1-2 that I just cited a minute ago. It's when the Holy Spirit was in the middle of his act of creation that he's hovering over the waters. And so to be cleansed with this water is symbolic of being made new or recreated. Right? Ezekiel's talking broadly about the nation of Israel, but Jesus hones in on this point and he applies it to the individual person when he's talking to Nicodemus, right? This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You have sinned against a holy God, therefore you're separated from him. You need to be washed, you need to have your sins forgiven, and you need a righteousness that is not your own. The Holy Spirit applies the sufficient work of Christ to provide all of these things. Only God can cleanse your soul. Notice again in our passage the I will statements. There are nine of them in total. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. Right? These statements are active. They're actions that God is doing for us and to us. He's at work to bring about restoration for his covenant people and he's not asking their permission to make sure it's okay and if he's violating their free will. Israel simply receives the result of God's working. He's on a mission for his name's sake by which he swore in the promise to Abraham that he would accomplish redemption. And oftentimes we don't understand the weight of that when it says that God swore by his own name. He said, let it be done to me what happened to these animals over here as they're cutting a covenant. He's putting his divinity on the line if he doesn't accomplish the redemption that he promised. That's important. And by applying the finished work of Christ, the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit takes us from unacceptable in God's sight to clean. The second point this morning is from obstinate to obedient. And we really need to come to grips with who we are. Ephesians 2.1 says that we're 
that we, speaking to Christians, were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You are dead. I don't feel dead. Do we really understand what it means to be dead? Dead men don't choose life any more than you chose to be born. Most are willing to quote Romans 23, 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes and amen. All people need a Savior. But what about Romans 3.10-11? through 11? As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's what being spiritually dead does to you. That's why he has to seek you, because you will not seek him apart from his intervening grace. And you'll often hear this metaphor of a man drowning in the ocean, right? And Jesus is paddling in his lifeboat, and he tells the man, if you'll just get in the boat, then I'll take you to shore. There's just one problem with that. Yes, of course, we make decisions. I want to be very clear about that. The Bible teaches both responsibility for our actions, genuine choices, and at the same time, the sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation. How these things work together? I don't know. God didn't ask me. But we see it very clearly throughout every page of the Scripture And so this idea that there would be somebody floating in the ocean, drowning, and Jesus comes up to him and says, Oh, please let me save you. Show me where that is in the scripture. No, a a much better image, metaphor, is that we were at the bottom of the sea, a corpse rotting in the salt water, and Christ came to us and he breathed life into these bones. Again, we we need to be clear that we make meaningful decisions. We are not robots. God is just in judging sin because when we choose to rebel against him, we really choose to rebel against him. In other words, we only sin as much as we want to. But we make these choices because they're within our nature. Our will is restrained by our sinful nature. We don't have an eternity of of options to choose from out there. We are going to make decisions every single time that are in line with our heart. And yet, at the same time, we see undeniably that God is all-powerful. And he knows no restraint, not even the human will. God has promised to redeem. He will keep his promise. And he does so by giving a new heart to those who are hard-hearted and enemies of him. This impurity from which Israel and even ourselves need to be cleansing is not only external, it's also internal. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our text here, Ezekiel 36, says that the nation of Israel had a heart of stone. Right? We think of stones, they're hard, they're heavy, they sink. 
What does it actually mean, though, to have a heart of stone? Scripture uses the word for heart. It's the Hebrew word lev in primarily three different ways. And we have to be careful because we have the tendency to want to categorize things way too far. Okay, The heart is the sum of these things, and these three things can't be really separated from each other in the final analysis. Are you ready for what they are? In the scripture, heart can mean mind, it can mean will, and it can mean desire. And so let's look at the heart as mind. Perhaps you've heard it said that Christianity is about the heart and not the head. That's actually not entirely true. So just bear with me for a moment. Because what I don't want to do is advocate for a cold, dead scholasticism. That doesn't take the heart into account either. But what we see in Scripture, beginning in Genesis 6-5, is that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's interesting that the heart has thoughts, isn't it? In Proverbs 3-5, the familiar verse, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And so this is a, a Hebrew couplet. There's a parallel here where heart and understanding are related to each other. In other words, we understand things with our heart. In Hebrews 4.12, a verse that many of you know and have committed to memory, I'm sure of that. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, even the New Testament is using the heart to speak of the mind in this way. Scripture intends to impact the way that we think, in other words. Right? The sinful mind thinks of himself. And this will be played out in many different ways. Right? Withholding forgiveness which is not a thing that we who have been forgiven our sins ought to do, is one example. The sinful mind, or the the hard heart, is suspicious. It has divisive thoughts. It's greedy. It's prideful. It dwells on pleasure. And yet the new heart thinks of others. It thinks charitably towards others, expecting the best from them. It seeks unity above division, It's thankful, it strives for humility, and it meditates on the things of God, right? And so there are important applications here. What you let into your mind is affecting your relationship with God. What you let into your mind is affecting your relationship with God, for better or worse. And so obvious examples of things like pornography and sexually oriented humor These are rebellious against God, and they corrupt the mind. Foul language, maybe the intense groupthink that goes on on social media, these things tend to stir the emotions in unhealthy ways. Perhaps one of Satan's most sinister plots to destroy human souls is the introduction of the LGBTQ agenda into children's TV shows. 
making an attempt to normalize rebellion against God in the eyes of small children. It's corruption of the mind with the end goal of hardening the heart. The mind is the battleground for the heart. And when you're struggling through a tough situation, right, you're tempted to think bad things about God. Maybe he's not perfectly good. Maybe he's not perfectly wise. Maybe he's not really in control. Stop dwelling on the problem. Pick up a theology book. One that's saturated in scripture. Louis Burkhoff, John MacArthur. Read about who God is. Get to know him deeper. Let Find one that will be a companion through the scripture that will make things clear and bring the scriptures to light and watch your faith grow through your adversity. The mind is incredibly important in the life of the Christian. The heart as will. Now, we've already established that as dead men, our wills are enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's clear. And if you don't believe me, look at your own life. But according to Scripture, the heart is where the will is. And the best example of this is, is when... Pharaoh refuses to let the people of Israel go. And Exodus 9, 34 through 35 says, But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Well, there you go. The Lord is sovereign over hearts. I don't think that's disputable. Right? God had a plan in which he was going to demonstrate his glory through redeeming his people and bringing judgment against the false gods of Egypt. And he executed it by using his, the sovereignty over hearts that he rightfully possesses. But Pharaoh had hardened his will against the command from the Lord. In other words, God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. The sinful will, right, the, the hard-hearted will, <clears throat> does not want to worship God for who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. There are many people that that want to claim to be Christians, that like the idea of Christian community or even going to heaven, but they see the things of God in Scripture and they make judgments about Him and they harden themselves against who He has revealed Himself to be. Right? The hard heart wants to enjoy the beauty and order of creation, but it doesn't want to give glory to the Creator. The hard heart <clears throat> will not submit to God's commands. However, a new heart loves and worships the God of Scripture. A new heart gives glory to God for all things and abides in God's commandments, joyfully submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the heart as desire. And this is the one that hurts the most, if I'm being honest with myself. We like to pretend that there's nothing wrong with us, right? And that we have it all together. From the outside looking in, everything seems perfect. But then when you are dig into the the warehouse of your soul, 
that storage shelf way back in the corner where all of those cobwebs and things are, right? You got idols sitting on the shelf. And that is evidenced by what you truly desire. And so you'll know what your idols are by asking the question, what is the desire of your heart? Psalm 21, 1 through 2 says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he results. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Romans 10.1, the Apostle Paul expresses, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And in Jeremiah 29.13, the Lord says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, it raises an important question then for us. Do you desire God above all else? Where do your desires really lie? Are you willing to shun the idols of the culture? Because they want to take your soul captive. Are you willing to flee yourself from the love of fleeting pleasures and exchange them for the one who makes known the path of life, in whose presence is the fullness of joy, and in whose right hand are pleasures forevermore? A heart filled with sinful desire will succumb to sexual immorality and perversion, to drunkenness, the love of money, power, gluttony, and covetousness. A new heart desires to honor God in word, thought, and deed, and to dwell in his presence for all eternity. And so a corrupt heart that lacks the Holy Spirit will be set on everything this world has to offer and a relationship with God will only be an afterthought. And we need to understand that many times it is a thought, but it's only an afterthought. And even in the church today, many would desire to spend eternity in a godless heaven. They don't desire God. What they do desire is God's mercy. In other words, they just don't want to go to hell. So they get their fire insurance by walking an aisle, by signing a card, or in the Catholic church, maybe it's taking the mass or undergoing baptism. But they're trusting in these works, not in God himself. So all of these things then come together as we see that the heart is the inner man. It's the sum of the mind, the will, and the desires. And these things can never be separated. So in giving a new heart, the Spirit transforms the entire person from the inside out. Right? That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is a sure sign of the presence of God's Spirit living within you. False prophets can perform signs and wonders. That's what it says in the scripture. But what's the litmus test? It's how their life is lived and the content of their message. So they're not being conformed to the image of Christ in their thoughts, desires, and deeds. False prophets do not walk in obedience because their heart of stone is contrary to God's commands. It doesn't matter what experience maybe you've had 
or what experience you've heard someone else talk about. What matters is the new heart. And so to receive the Spirit's new heart is to receive the gift of faith, which transforms the, other, the entire person from the inside out. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So saving, grace, transformation, walking in obedience. Thirdly, we see becoming a citizen from a sojourner. Sojourner is simply a person that's in a a foreign land, an exile, possibly, much like the nation of Israel. When we are cleansed and given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, he transforms us from sojourners to citizens. In other words, we have been given a promise in Jesus Christ that is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We back to our passage in Ezekiel, verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The land is the complete fulfillment of God's promises. Because of Israel's sin, God justly judged them and he threw them out. In other words, there was space, there was division created between God's promises and the rebellious people and his glory departed from their presence. Some were hauled away into Babylonian exile as a remnant, but the majority perished in the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. God shattered the world of those who were remaining. These people could not imagine a life without their temple. That was where the glory of God was supposed to stay. And even though we can see looking back on Scripture that they did not have the fullness yet of what God had promised, they didn't even have all the land that they were supposed to take in the original conquest. But their world has been turned upside down. You can imagine the heartbreak that they felt not understanding that something greater was coming. That's that's where we find this passage in their darkest moment. God tells them that not all is lost. And so let this be abundantly clear that God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises depends wholly and completely on him, not on us. What role do we play in our salvation? We created a debt. We created the need to be saved. And that debt had to be paid by the blood of Christ. And because of our sin, the Father sent the Son to live a perfect life on our behalf and then to go to the cross where he was murdered on Calvary. He died and he was buried. And then he rose from the dead three days later promising new life now and a new life to come. For all who repent of their sins and believe that Jesus is alive. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God never fails to keep his promises. What he requires is a heart that is Godward. It's walking away from your sin. It's, ch- it's changing your mind about your sin and clinging to God's promises which are secure in Christ. As the Holy Spirit comes, he applies the saving work of Jesus Christ by arresting our hardened hearts and exchanging our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. And we are then made full heirs of the promises which God swore by his name that he will keep. The question is, do you know Christ? Do you know him such that it has changed your entire life? Because this is the Spirit's ministry. It's applying and guaranteeing the promises of God to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And if you truly believe, if you belong to him, you cannot be the same. So why does this matter? Well, the guarantee of God's promised redemption is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what we just read. If you don't have the Holy Spirit then your, your soul is at stake. We're talking about false conversion, thinking that you're right with God and then standing before him on the last day and him telling you to depart because he never knew you. That is eternally irreversible. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is transforming him with a new heart. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't deceive yourself into believing that you have the Spirit of God at work in your life just because you've prayed the sinner's prayer once or you've had some kind of spiritual experience, you need a new heart that will be reflected by what you desire. What do you desire more than God? Is it pleasure? Wellness? Children? Success? Security? Are you willing to let these desires subvert and negatively affect your relationship with God? As I preached last time, what you, you will reap what you sow. If you plant the seeds of the Spirit, you will have a spiritual harvest. If you plant the seeds of the flesh and the world, that's what you will reap. What you think about impacts your desire. And the more you hide sin in your heart, the more difficult the submission to the Word of God is. Have you resolved to be satisfied in God alone? Only he will eternally satisfy. What gives you assurance? What gives you the assurance that you know Jesus? How do you know that you have received eternal life? It's through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Does your heart long for communion with God or are you just trying to be good enough to appease God through works? The only way that you can avoid legalism is to experience the transforming power of the Spirit as He gives a new heart. And there is all-sufficient 
grace to save and perform divine heart surgery that each and every one of us needs. And so here's a final thought. Are you resting in Christ? In chapter 18 of Ezekiel, God said, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. They couldn't do it. Only God could. And he did. Many are trusting in an altar call, teaching a Sunday school class, being baptized or taking the Catholic Mass. And none of that can make you right with God. He wants your heart. And so as we conclude this morning, the Spirit's ministry is giving a new heart. He's cleansing, transforming, and securing God's promises. And if you're here and know that you do not belong to Christ, then I just want to offer you this. Listen to the voice of the Spirit as he speaks through his word. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the complete work of Christ which is applied by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you've given truth and you've brought clarity that we can see the condition of our hearts before you and our need to know you. I pray, Lord, that you would do something with this sermon. Use it for your glory however you would. Create in us clean hearts as we go out from here. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.